All right, raise your hands nice and high. We're going to be in John chapter 4, verses 5 through 30, and I just want to say how happy I am to see all of you. When I saw how thin the prayer service was, I was starting to freak out. I'm like, oh man, I'm going to be preaching to the worship team. <laughs> and no, you know, it's just going to be me worshiping there in the front. Hey, guys. But um, I'm glad to see all of you. Super, super glad. So let's just get right into the word. All right. John chapter 4. We're going to start at verse 5. Now, for those of you that regularly come, you'll know that last, uh, last time that we met, uh, Jeremy Haynes went through John chapter 4 with us as well, and he, he uh, discussed uh, the woman at the well, and I'm going to tell you that we are going to be discussing the same passage this week. It's such a deep passage that we need to get um, several different perspectives on it. It's just such a, a deep and lively passage that we're going to go through it twice. So, John chapter 4 Verse 5, so he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with. And the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it himself as well as his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered and said to her, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have well said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands. And the one whom you have now is not your husband. In that you spoke truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I, per- I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that, in Jerus- that Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews, but the hour is coming, and now is. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that the Messiah is coming who is called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. At this point, his disciples came and they marveled that he talked with a woman. Yet, 
No one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? The woman then left her water pot, went into her way into the city and said to the men, come, see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Then they went out in the city and came to him. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your glorious word, God, and that, and that you are a God that is not absent from our lives, but chooses to reveal himself through spoken word, Lord. Thank you for grace, Lord, and how it erases shame. But we realize this morning that we cannot experience grace without shame. God, re- reveal what you wish. Lord, I pray that I would decrease tonight so that you may increase. Any words that come from my mouth, Lord, I pray would be completely and totally forgotten. But the words that come from you, Lord, I pray that they would echo on in eternity, Lord. We love you, Jesus. Amen. So, much like Jeremy Haynes last week, we, we learned about who this Samaritan woman is. And I, I'm, I'm going to go into further context and who this woman is, what she does, and, and what she's like. And so we, we label her, and your Bibles label her, label her the Samaritan woman. Now, what does that mean to be a Samaritan? You see, the Samaritans were Jewish and pagan mixed. Jew and Gentile mixed together into one race called the Samaritans. Now, they would take Jewish religion, skewing it to accommodate pagan customs. And in doing this, they were shunned by the people of Israel. In in taking up pagan traditions and worshiping some of their idols and taking up um, wives and husbands that were Gentile, they were then shunned and considered as dogs to the Jews. Completely shunned. The Jews, especially a Jewish rabbi such as Jesus, if they were seen talking to a Samaritan in public, that would cost them their title. Stripped like that. The reputation that was at at stake for a rabbi to be speaking to a Samaritan, let alone a Samaritan woman, is insane. Now, it's insane in and of itself that Jesus is going through Samaria. Now, there are two ways. You can go through Samaria or you can go around it. Any Jew, any Jew, it was just common knowledge you went around Samaria. Those Samaritans are dogs. And if, you're even, if you even look at one, you need to pray hard because you're probably going to hell. This, the Samaritans were segregated and the Samaritans were completely rejected by Israel. And so not only Samaritan, but a Samaritan woman. Now, women, we know back then, were second-class citizens, not highly esteemed in culture. And for a rabbi to be speaking to a woman in public is crazy as well. Not as crazy as it would be to speak to a Samaritan, but just as, just as condemnable. So a Samaritan woman, for Jesus to be speaking to a Samaritan woman, you have to realize, is a big deal. And so for this, this woman to be conversing with Jesus is odd. Very odd. And so we don't only learn that she is from a separated and segregated people and a second class citizen in her own society just by being a woman, but we also learn that she has been married five times. 
Now, it doesn't explicitly say this in Scripture, but historically, we know that during this time, women did not divorce men. It just didn't happen. Women did not go up to their husbands and say, I want to divorce you. It was always the man who went up to the woman and said, I want to divorce you. I don't want you anymore. So this woman had been married five times. So far, this woman has been rejected by five husbands. Also speculation, maybe because of her sexual promiscuity and her history with men. This woman is also living with a man who's not her husband. Also, looking back at the culture, people didn't just shack up like we see today. It wasn't like in a romantic comedy where where a guy's like, oh, baby, I love you. You know, you're my soulmate. Here's the key to my apartment. Okay, that's not how it happened. It was, hey, listen, you're homeless. Nobody wants you. You're pretty. Why don't you live with me and I'll give you food and shelter, and you and I can hook up every once in a while. This was the circumstance in which this woman was living. She was literally living in bondage to her sin. By all circumstances, she was in complete bondage to her shame and sin. Unable to escape. What am I going to do, leave him? It's my meal ticket. What am I going to do, go to college and get a job? No, I'm a Samaritan woman. This woman was completely and totally, by all standards of her time and our time, she wasn't a moral woman. Having been married five times and now living with a man that's not her husband, she was by all, all cultural standards an immoral woman. A woman who was not highly esteemed, the lowest of the low, completely in bondage to her sin, unable to escape it by her own means. Unable to escape it. She was a rejected woman among a rejected people group. Imagine being a member of the Samaritans. And then being the lowest of them. How do you think Jewish men treat you? Not only being a Samaritan, but a Samaritan woman that has been married five times and is now committing sexual sin. This is her life. Every single day. She's ashamed, so ashamed that she gets her water in the middle of the day to avoid all the other women. You see, back then, to give you context, the women, you know, the Middle East is hot. Samaria is hot. All the women would go in their own group, and they'd go and get the water from the well early in the morning. And then they would come back later in the evening when it's nice and cool. Nobody would go in the middle of the day. It's hot. You see, but, but this woman had to go in the middle of the day because back then, all, all those women getting water, gossiping about, you know, complaining about their husbands, bragging about their children, you know, all that stuff. They'd be talking, conversing, doing all of this stuff. Imagine what that type of environment would be like for a woman that's been married five times and is now committing sexual sin. Imagine what that's like for her. Of course she's avoiding all of these women. She's, she's avoiding all those dirty looks that only girls can give each other. I had a girlfriend once, and, and we, were, we were just, we, we were walking, we were walking, just uh, on a sidewalk, and, and, and this girl passed by, 
this girl passed by us, and she tapped me on the shoulder. She said, did you see that? I'm like, did I see what? She's like, did you see the look she just gave me? She just called me ugly. And I said, there was a millisecond. It was just, this was that, just one click, quick glance. And, and, and words, just a book, a novel, and just a look. She's like, she's like you, 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 you had to have seen that. And I said, absolutely not. <laughs> She, she's, she, she's going at noon to avoid all those dirty looks and all those passive-aggressive comments like, oh, you're wearing that today. That's nice. She, she, she's avoiding all of that. Just think about how much ridicule she is getting from all of these women. Imagine that. Avoiding the dirty looks and passive-aggressive comments that, that just add to the shame she's already feeling. You know... There's a lot of shame in sexual sin. There's a lot of shame in any sin. But it's an entirely different thing to have five different men say, you're not worthy. I reject you. Get out. And then the man that you're living with is like, yeah, you're pretty, but I don't respect you enough to marry you. I don't respect you enough to marry you. And, and that's the beef I have with so many guys that are living with their girlfriends. Like, you don't respect her enough to even marry her. You don't love her. And so, just imagine what this woman is feeling. And I'm sure, I mean, I, I, I'm sure not a lot of us have been married five different times. But we have our own shame. We have our own demons that we have to deal with. And so many times we, we, we avoid the things of God because we're just ashamed. I can't deal with this. We avoid people that are walking with the Lord because I just can't be around them. So much shame. Do you know what I love? I love how Jesus starts the conversation here. There's something incredibly special about the way Jesus starts the conversation. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city. Now, if you look at the direct translation, give me a drink is not a statement like, woman, give me a drink. All right? That's, that's not how it was. He was asking a question. He was asking politely, could you give me a drink? He was asking a question. Now, It's easy for us to just say, okay, he was just asking for a drink, you know, trying to start small talk. But it's so much deeper than that. And in these four words, there's so much about Jesus' intent for this woman. Because you have to know something, and we find this out later in the text. Jesus knows every single sin this woman has ever committed in her entire life. Jesus knows every itty-bitty sin And every huge sin that she has ever committed. He knows every hair on her head. He knows her birthday. He knows everything about her. And he could have walked up to her and said, oh, I know you. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I am Christ. He says, give me a drink. It's a question, not a, a demand. And what is so special about this statement? Jesus has made himself subject to her refusal in this statement. 
He has made himself subject to her refusal. She could have easily said, no, I don't want to give you a drink, and walked away. When Jesus has asked her for a drink, he has taken the low ground in the conversation. He has made himself dependent upon her for the progression of the conversation. Any other man would have said, I know you. I want nothing to do with you. Get your water. Get out because I'm thirsty. I need to get my own water. Or if they would even speak to her, they'd say, woman, get me water. I'm higher than you. Jesus took the low ground. Jesus humbled himself and made himself at the mercy of how she wants the conversation to go. Jesus has taken the low ground in the conversation. He does not talk down to her, nor does he patronize her. I don't know about all of you, but I have a very, very, very hard time with this. And, and I was just convicted when I was studying for this message. When I look at the way that Jesus approaches the conversation, I think, how often do I take the low ground in the conversation? How often do I humble myself in the conversation and let somebody else really just allow it to go where it wants to go? Because I'm here to minister to them, not vice versa. And a lot of the times I've mistaken it where if I'm ministering to somebody, that means that I'm doing the majority, the majority of the talking. And that means that I'm the one leading the conversation. That means I'm the one giving insight. And that means I'm the one directing where the conversation would go. Will go. So little do I really take the low ground and humble myself in a conversation with an unbeliever or a believer. I find myself constantly talking down to people. And it, it pains me. Because now that I've noticed it, I, I'm convicted every single time I, I do it. You see, I just started studying this early this week. And even, even in the past three days, I'm like, I did it again. I've done it again. I have a very hard time taking the low ground. And, and what verse really helps me? Jesus is displaying the exact principle Paul describes in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9-13 through 13, when he says this. I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world. Or with the covetous or the extortioners or the idolaters. Since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. For what I have to do, what, for what do I have to do with judging those who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. What Paul is saying right here, he's saying, you guys totally misinterpreted what I said. I said, don't hang out with the, sexual, the sexually immoral. But I didn't mean stop hanging out and stop speaking with the sexually immoral of this world. If you were to stop talking to the drunkards, the idolaters, the extortioners, and the sexually immoral, you'd have to leave this world or you'd have to sleep at church. Wake up at church, spend your entire day at church. You would have to completely isolate yourself from the entire world. Don't judge those who are outside of the world that are committing sexual sin, that are lying, that are reviling, that are stealing, that are extortioning, extortioners. 
you are supposed to be with them. You are supposed to minister to them. You see, it's the people inside the church that are drunkards, that are sexually immoral. Those are the people you ought to judge because they are under church authority. And it's those you shouldn't even eat with those people because they're claiming to be believers when clearly they're not bearing any fruit. But for those that are sexually immoral, if you were to stop talking to them altogether, A, they wouldn't come to the Lord. B, you would have to leave. You would have to live such an isolated lifestyle that there's no way you can fulfill the Great Commission. Jesus is a perfect example of 1 Corinthians chapter 5. He is here with a Samaritan woman who has had five husbands and is now committing sexual sin. And he is ministering to her. He is speaking with her and he is revealing to her truth. We are not to isolate ourselves from the world. We are to be in it. Christ was the ultimate missionary coming from heaven down to this dirty, rotten earth. We can leave our houses, our home groups, and our church to minister to those who Jesus loves. Now, the woman's tone here, I, 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 I want to I look at the woman's tone when she speaks. Now, I haven't read any commentaries that allude to this fact. I, I've heard it mentioned once in a sermon. But I, I, I really wanted to emphasize this. So we're going to look at these verses. Then when the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Living water is that water that flows from a stream. Okay, water that is constantly flowing. That is what he means by living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it himself as well as his sons and, and his livestock? Now, when I read this text, when I read this text, I sense some spite and sarcasm in the Samaritan's words. I sense a lot of spite and sarcasm and just the attitude where it's like, what are you getting at? This is why I think that. A couple years ago, it was Christmas Eve, and I had just, uh, I had driven, I was driving down from Solving, that's where my grandparents live, and I, I was driving down from Solving, San Inez area, and I had stopped by Calvary Chapel Santa Barbara, that was the last year that my dad was working at the church, and they were doing a Christmas event, I kind of ca caught the tail end of it, and so then I, I, I was driving down from Santa Barbara, San Inez area, and it was around 11 o'clock at night. I was going back to the house, and I was driving, and I stopped by East Beach. You know, it's a place that my dad had taken me as a kid, and I just grew up there, and I love going there. I feel refreshed, you know. Sometimes I would go there to pray and just, and you know, so I, so I went there. I just stopped by, and it was really late at night. I stopped by just to pray and thank God for Christmas. You know, Jesus, thank you so much for coming. You know, you're awesome. And I was just, I was feeling all nostalgic and I was just happy that, that, that the Lord is so good to me. You know, this was a time when I had just, um, you know, started uh, 
volunteering and, and you know, kind of interning here at Calvary Chapel Thousand Oaks, and I was just super happy with the way things were going, and and I was just thanking God, right? And it was Christmas Eve, and I'm praying, and, and I hear some rustling, and uh, about 50 yards away from me, I see a homeless man digging through the trash. And he was digging through the trash, not only to find bottles and cans, but I, I literally saw him eating some of the garbage. This is Christmas Eve. And this man is eating out of the garbage. And so I remembered, you know, I was just at my grandparents' house. And my, my grandma had given me this tin. And I had a Christmas sweater that she had, you know, bought me. And I had a $10 bill in my back pocket. So I'm like, you know, I'm going to bless this guy. You know, it, it's Christmas Eve and he's eating out of the trash. You know, and so, so I got it all together. I got my cookies and $10 bill. And, you know, I walk over and, and, you know, he's bending over and he's getting all the trash. And he's just trying to collect it all in his bag. And, and so I come up from behind him. You know, I don't want to startle him. You know, so from a distance, I kind of just say, hey, excuse me. And he responds so violently that I was, I was, I was taken back. He's right here and he's, what the, do you want? Just complete blood-curdling scream. What do you want? Leave me alone. And here I'm, I'm with my tin of cookies, you know, trembling. I'm like, Merry Christmas. And he looks, and he looks at the tin, and he starts to cry. And, and, and he just says, I'm so sorry. He said, I am so sorry. Sorry, I'm so used to people being so mean to me that I just respond in I just I just don't respond well. I'm, I, I just thought you were another punk kid, you know, coming to make fun of me. And and and, and he just he starts to cry, and, and I, I give it to him, and he says, "Thank you so much." And I, I get to talk to him a little about a little bit about Jesus, and and he, you know, he. Uh, he already knew Jesus, and you know, so we, we talked for like 10, 15 minutes, and his name was Marvin. I said Marty to my junior high, but I'm like, no, it wasn't Marty, it was Marvin. And, and, he, and he says to me, this is the nicest thing anybody's done for me in three years. I want you to imagine three years, the nicest thing that had ever happened to this man was getting a tin of cookies. I want you to imagine that. The nicest thing that had ever happened to this man in three entire years was a complete stranger just saying, Merry Christmas, I hope you don't starve. And so when I look at this text and the way that the Samaritan woman is speaking to Jesus, I can sense the same thing that Marvin had, which is complete shame and hurt. And so when, when, when she says, living water, where is it? Are you messing with me? Put your money where your mouth is. You've been talking about this living water. This well has been here for a thousand years. Are you better than, than our father, Jacob? Are you better than our father, Jacob? It's been here feeding us water for 10,000 years. You're coming, you're, not 10,000 years. You're coming and, and telling me about this living water. Where's your stream, water boy? Where's your stream? Because living water's flowing. I don't see nothing around here. So put up or shut up and leave me alone. I sense in this Samaritan woman the same thing 
that Marvin had that night where he responds with such hostility and just frustration because of the amount of shame and how he's so used to being talked to in a poor manner. Do you think this man that she's living with is nice to her? Really? Do you think she she avoids these women just because she enjoys the heat? No. She's ashamed. She's ashamed. So am I. I'm sure we all have something we're ashamed of. Jesus answered and said to her, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. This is his response to her hostility. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw. Jesus has gotten her attention. Why? Because He is offering one thing that mankind has searched for since the beginning of the fall in the Garden of Eden, and that is satisfaction. Satisfaction is the ultimate goal of all human beings. The ultimate goal of every single person that has ever existed is to be in that point where they say, and look at their surroundings and say, I am content. I'm content. Now for some, that's just getting another million dollars. Another hundred thousand dollars. If I could just get more money and more money. Now it goes into another extreme where people are like, if I can just eat today. Like Marvin. I will be content. I will be satisfied. Our standards change. But satisfaction is the ultimate goal of all human beings. And Jesus is saying to this woman, you will never thirst again. So she, she's saying, are you saying that I don't have to come to this stream and face ridicule anymore? Is that what you're saying to me, Jesus? Don't play, bro. I'm getting serious. Are, are you serious about this? You're saying that I can be satisfied? Spurgeon said this, you say, if I had a little more, I should be very satisfied. You make a mistake. If you were not content with what you have, you would not be satisfied if you were doubled. Our souls are eternal things, right? Our souls live on forever. Thus, the thirst that they have cannot be quenched by perishable things or activities. Our souls demand eternal satisfaction and settling for anything else will result in temporal pleasure but followed by eternal displeasure. Our souls are eternal, constantly wanting to cling onto eternal things and when we, when we cheap it out, when, when we totally cheap out on it and, and, and we're stingy, our souls are like, what the heck are you feeding me right now? Video games? Money? What, what am I supposed to do with this? I'm going to live on for eternity. This is going to be spent in a, in a month. It's like, what, what are you doing? All these new toys, your soul is just screaming out saying, what the heck am I going to do with this in 10 years? 100 years? 
thousand years, all of eternity, what am I supposed to do with this, Zach? And, and, and the same can go for good things. You know, I'm, I'm always in a struggle where I'm like, oh, man, I want a wife, bro. <laughs> I'm lonely. And my soul is like, what about Jesus? There's so many things. You know, if I could just get more money, your soul is just saying, what are you thinking? What am I going to do with this in a million years? Because do you know what? I will last that long. I want to be satisfied. I'm constantly cheaping out my soul. I'm constantly, constantly giving it food that it doesn't want. My flesh wants it. My flesh is like, yeah, bro. Party. My soul is like, you suck. Right? I mean, am I the only one that feels this way? I doubt it. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. We know this woman doesn't have a husband. And Jesus knows it. The woman's shame is is totally communicated in these four words. I have no husband. We're so open about boasting about the things that we're proud of. We're all, always ready to conceal what we're ashamed of. She didn't say, oh, well, yeah, I kind of got a boyfriend. Going steady, you know. Might tie the knot soon, but, you know, I'm just giving him his space. No, she's saying, I, I have no husband. Hoping that Jesus won't pry anymore. Jesus is going to pry. And it's brutal. It is brutal. Jesus said to her, you have well said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband, and that you truly speak. Jesus exposes her sin and lays it out in front of her. And, and when we're reading, when I'm reading at least, I'm like, Jesus, that was, that was harsh. She's clearly ashamed. Why would you lay out her sin in just such a blunt manner? It's because of this. There cannot be salvation without shame first. Impossible. It is impossible to receive salvation if you do not first experience shame. Psalm 51 says it perfectly. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness. This is right after um, David had killed Bathsheba's husband. He says, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly of my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is always before me against you, and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. You may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. He says, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. And he goes on to just say, create in me a clean heart, O Lord. David could not be in this point of repentance unless he had first experienced shame for all of the sins that he had committed. And he even goes back to his birth. (laughs) He 
says, even when I was coming out of my mama's womb, I was brought forth in iniquity. I was rebelling since the minute I was born. God, forgive me. Not only for cheating on my wife, stealing another man's wife, and then having that man murdered. But I want you to forgive me for every other sin that I've committed since I was born. Romans 5.8 says, though, but God demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Do you know what this means? Do you know what this means? It means that God knows your sin already. And he loves you already. That while we were yet still sinners, Christ died for us. And in exposing our sin, God is allowing for himself to cleanse us and purge us. We cannot have salvation without shame first. And this is what I try to pound in the heads of my junior hires. Because sometimes they just, they they know that God's real. They know that he offers salvation. But they just don't see themselves as sinners. And those are always the most difficult people to work with. Nicodemus, who we learned about earlier. Pharisee of Pharisees. Moral man. Those are the hardest. Laying the sin out before this woman is the perfect road to salvation. Ephesians 2, 11 through 13 says, Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who were called uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, made in the flesh by hands, that at the time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, who were once uh, were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He exposes her for this reason. He exposes her so when he saves her, she cannot leave saying, God saved me, but only because he doesn't know my sin. God wants to expose your sin for the sole reason that he receives all glory because you are the ultimate sinner in your own eyes. God doesn't want anybody to leave this church, anybody to leave his presence saying, so glad that Jesus forgave me, so glad that I didn't mention that one sin to him. Because man, he probably wouldn't have saved me then. The passage we just read in Romans totally refutes that saying that while we were yet still sinners, Christ died for us. So this woman comes now from shame to more shame. Because Jesus has just exposed her sin. Now to worship. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on the mountain. And you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. She's saying this. I would worship God. I would worship God. I would love to worship God. But do you know what? I'm a Samaritan. And you Jews declare that I can't worship him anyways. So what's the point? Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. 
You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. God does not care about your ritual but about your heart. God does not care about the place but the content of your worship. God does not care about the ritual and by uh, the things that you do for worship, the sacrifices that you make, the incense that you burn, if your heart is not in the right place, if you're not worshiping in spirit. God does not care about the place, whether you're worshiping on the mountain or in the temple. He cares about what are you worshiping, whom are you worshiping, and are you worshiping according to the gospel? Worshiping in truth. And so he's saying to this woman, yeah, you've been told that you can't worship because you're a Samaritan, but the time is now when you can worship in spirit and in truth. As long as you are worshiping the God, of the creator of the universe, for all of his right attributes, I'm telling you right now that you can be in fellowship with him and that you can pray to him and he will hear you. You're not separated from him. The time has come where the gap is going to be bridged. The time has come now where we can all worship Jesus. Jew, Gentile, slave, free. All of us can worship him. There's no sin keeping you from turning to Jesus. No amount of shame that God does not already know about. The woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming. who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. She's saying, what you're saying makes sense, but I'm going to wait for the Messiah to kind of confirm this statement. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And at this point, his disciples came and they marveled that he was talking to a woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek or, or why are you talking with her? The woman then left her water pot. So, so here's what happened. He said, I who speak to you right now am he. Light bulb up in this woman's head. OMG. It's Christ. Then the disciples have to come and quench the Holy Spirit moment. Be like judging them. Like, why is he talking to a woman? Doing what Christians do best. Judging in their heads. He's coming. They're like, what's he doing? And, and she drops her water pot. And the woman who was once ashamed to go with the other group of women to go get water is now running into the town and declaring that the Christ has come. This is what the love of God does. It liberates us. We are no longer in bondage to our shame because that very shame becomes our testimony and our greatest strength. It's, it's no longer, I am ashamed, separated from God, therefore I must separate myself from everybody else. It is, I am ashamed, God has taken it away, and it is that testimony that gives me the liberty to speak to everyone around me about this beautiful sacrifice. This should inspire, just as it does to the Samaritan woman, worship in our hearts. I will say it every sermon 
before we go into a time of worship. Worship is not warming up for the message. It is her response to the beauty that is the gospel. Just as the Samaritan woman was, I pray that this morning, I mean, not this morning, tonight, we would all be liberated by the gospel. This woman who was once afraid to go get water with some people is now declaring to the entire town, come, the Christ is here. Because, because she's no longer defined by the sins anymore. She's now defined by the liberating power of her Messiah. She has a new identity that, that, that Paul would, would, would tell us in Ephesians chapter 4. That we have a new, we are a new creation in Christ. We have put on the new man. Completely and totally new. And we live in that liberation. We live in that liberty which is to be free from our sin. We have a new master and his name is Jesus. This woman is no longer master to this man that is abusing her. She's no longer master to all five husbands that have rejected her. She is no longer master to all those women that give her dirty looks just because she tries to get some water. She's no longer master to what people say about her. She's no longer master to, she's she's no longer subject to any of that. She's no longer subject to the Jews. Her new master is Christ. And that's freedom. And that should make us worship in spirit and in truth, which is what we're about to do right now. Amen. Amen. Lord, thank you so much for this time, God. I thank you for your word and how it liberates us. It sets us free, God. And that there is no sin, God, that you do not know of. And there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. gospel so beautiful lord you would set us free lord and free to worship you in spirit and in truth i pray that we do that tonight lord that we would worship you with the full knowledge that it is it is your spirit god that allows us to worship And God, it it is your truth which is the standard by which we worship. I pray that we do that tonight, Lord, and that we would just be set free by your word, Lord. We would be set free by what you've done for us on the cross. Bless this time of worship, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.